Broadcasting from the pulpit of sports radio in Boston, it's Sunday Mass with Christian Arcan on WEEI. Final hour, Sunday Mass, Reverend Arcan. Nice to have you with us here in my congregation. A little bit later uh, Mass than usual. As we take you into the 2 o'clock hour, I'll be relieved in uh, about 60 minutes. By Fitzy and Hart, they will take you for the duration of the afternoon up until 6. We care in the All-Star game? No? Okay. It's all right. I mean, who wants to listen to the All-Star game? <laughs> like, we, were on, uh, we were on for uh, the Pro Bowl, which was like a flag football game. And I was like, we're not carrying the Pro Bowl. <laughs> like, that would really be lame. But uh, no, not that, uh, not any of that. Instead, you got uh, Fitzy and Hart. Who are much better than the Pro Bowl and much better than the uh, NBA All-Star game to listen to. I love those guys. And uh, they have been on fire lately, I think. Um, at night and uh, when you've heard them filling in different parts of the day. I think they've both been terrific lately. Uh, that said, we had Jeff Benedict on Friday. Live in studio, which was very cool. It was cool to meet him. Um, you just heard him talking there to Jones. As uh, Jones asked him how the thing all started. And he let this out, which I didn't realize. Uh, he reached out. After the Eagles Super Bowl, after the 2017 Super Bowl, the Malcolm Butler Super Bowl, which, if you'll remember, the run-up to that, that was the first Wickersham article, wasn't it? Like, that was, there was a lot of intrigue going on. There was a lot of stuff that had been reported on uh, in the the run-up to that, I believe, that Super Bowl. And Brady was unhappy. There was that awful contract the next year. Brady has an MVP season, gets him to the Super Bowl, and then the next year they offer him a contract, $15 million, with five $1 million incentives each to get it up to 20. That was their offer to him after that season in that Super Bowl where he threw for 500 yards, whatever it was. So smart by uh, Jeff Benedict to pounce on it at that point. And, boy, were those good instincts because things really, I mean, really spiraled after that. I know they won the Super Bowl the next year, but there was a lot of, you know, sniping back and forth. And then 2019, they're 8-0. Tony O'Brown's in town. Josh Gordon, all that's happening. And then they get beat by Tennessee, and that was that. And it was over. And, I mean, Brady going to Tampa in the next few years with the Patriots and Mac and all that stuff. I mean, we'll see how that's all handled and what that, uh, what that looks like in the dynasty in the documentary. But that, I mean, on Benedict's part, I didn't realize that's when he started doing this, but that is uh, when he started getting interested in writing the book, which I'm looking at a copy of it right now here in studio. And, uh, you know, we we read it at the time when it came out. Things have happened since then. And uh, it is a... It is a really interesting time for the Patriots. It's a it's a crossroads in a lot of ways, and we'll be talking with Mike Cadlick at one thirty. Our own Mike Cadlick joins me here in about twenty five minutes. One thing I just wanted to say though is that in the space of this documentary, I'd say that they're equally going after various uh, people, including people who are subjects of the uh, of the documentary and who do sit downs with them. I think that there's equal opportunity criticism. And it doesn't seem like it's all being directed one way or another. It doesn't seem like it's all coming from the Crafts or it's all coming from Bill or it's all coming from the Brady's. It does seem like everything's being treated uh, equally and fairly. 
that's how it looks for the first two episodes anyway. I don't know what it's going to look like uh, going forward, but a lot of the people who have seen the screeners have told me that it, everything is treated that way. The documentary is uh, very responsible in that sense of not making it seem like it's all coming from one side or that you know they're doing a narrative or, or promoting a narrative for one side and not the other. Uh, the objectivity of it all, I think, has been good so far, and people tell me that in the later episodes it maintains that. So I hope that's true, and I guess I'll know when I see it. But outside of the just the documentary, I'm starting to wonder, for all the crap that we've given uh, Red Sox ownership, for some of the ways guys have been treated when they left, the way Terry Francona was treated, the way Nomar was treated, the way Manny was treated, the way a lot of guys were treated, um, can you say anything different about the Crafts and Bill Belichick? Can they, can you sort of draw that line or is it blurred now? Because I think it's blurred now. I think the way that Bill's been treated by the Crafts, not even, you know, through back channels and sniping, giving quote, anonymous quotes to journalists or anything like that. I'm not even talking about that. It started right away. It started during the season, honestly. It started when it came out that after the Indy game, after that game in Germany, they had made the decision. And listen, I mean, Tommy Curran took a lot of heat for reporting that. And he was right. That decision was made. And it wasn't just that the decision was made. It was made, and they were already laying down the foundation of how this was going to go in the PR battle. They were already drafting up their uh, their hit pieces and excuses and everything else. And listen, if you followed the Patriots through things like the Flategate, then you know that the PR machine's going to start cranking. And the Wells Report in context is going to go up on the internet. <laughs> you know? The Belichick years in context is going to start coming out now. You're going to start hearing about what really was behind some of these things. And how Bill really was the one who screwed up this. And how, you know, if it wasn't for Bill, this would have happened. And blah, 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 blah. You're hearing it. Bill's the one who decided how much money to spend. Bill's the one who did this. Bill's the reason why we didn't get this. Bill's the reason why, you know, Mac Jones got ruined. And all these other things. And listen, I agree with some of those. I think Bill Belichick mishandled Mac Jones horribly. Horribly. You talk about setting a franchise back. These last couple years, I'll lay off the first one because they did make the playoffs in Max rookie year. The two years after that have set this franchise so far back, I just don't think people get it. Like, I argue with Jones about this all the time. He thinks the Patriots can turn it around and be good this year. He's expecting them to turn it around and be good. They're not going to be good. <laughs> you think the Patriots are going to be good? They have so much work to do. Just on the offense, they have so much work to do. And I don't know that Gerard Mayo is going to be a better coach than Bill Belichick. I just don't know that. How could you know that? He probably, at first, he probably won't be. But even all the great coaching wisdom of Bill Belichick, and that's another thing on his way out the door that I just could not take. Oh, how are you going to throw all that experience out the window? How Bill Belichick has forgotten more about football than any of these other coaches will ever know in their life. How could you possibly do? He's lived and breathed football his whole career and 50 years in the league and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, great. What does that have to do with a 4-13 and team? You know, what, what value is there really to that if the team you're coaching and putting together is this piece of garbage? 
50 years of uh, experience doesn't really matter, does it? Some young coaches out there doing big things right now. Mike McDaniel does not have nearly the experience that Bill Belichick does. The Dolphins were head, shoulders, and torso better than the Patriots this year. I mean, not even close. So really, what does that experience matter if the guy putting the team together is whiffing in the drafts and spending money in just inexcusable ways? I'm sorry. I know that they weren't spending very much, but I think that that was also partially Bill deciding that that was the way to go. I know he complained about it that one year, but, you know, you didn't have to give that money to Devontae Parker when DeAndre Hopkins is out there. That was you, Bill. Kraft didn't tell you to do that. You had money to spend it, and you spent it wrong. You didn't have to bring in Juju Smith-Schuster and let Jacoby Myers walk over a million dollars. That was your decision. That was not the Kraft's decision. They didn't say you had to do that. They wouldn't have known if you hadn't if you hadn't signed Juju Smith-Schuster and kept Myers. Like, that wouldn't have been something that they would have called you into the office and said, hey, Bill, what about Juju Smith-Schuster? Like, no one's saying that. No one would have said that. He made those decisions. But in fairness here, on his way out the door, the Crafts had already uh, greased those skids, had they not? You know, when they when they threw him down that garbage chute, that garbage chute was slick, and he went uh, went down fast. And they were already talking about, you know, oh man, that was some bad garbage there. And don't don't uh, misinterpret it. That's exactly what happened, and that's what's continuing to happen. And I don't think that the dynasty is contributing to it in the way that Kraft's Q and A after the uh, press conference did. That was that was obviously. I mean, they couldn't have been more blatant about what was happening there. It was right there in your face. But this isn't helping. And I'm a little disappointed that Belichick only sat down with him for a day. We found that out. He only sat down with him for one day. And in the first two episodes, he's been very sort of stiff, very uptight. And Jeff Benedict told us that that's how he is the entire time. So every time you see or hear from Bill Belichick in this docuseries, that's that's how it is. You're not going to get him how he was in 2001, smiling and laughing with uh, with the media. You know, chuckling with Mike Lynch and the rest of those guys all having a laugh. Like, it's just, that's not that's not how he is in this thing. I wonder when it was that he changed. I don't really remember. I, I, I remember him being kind of chummy with the media back then, but not really. Like, I'm, I'm trying to remember when it really shifted for him. When he just stopped engaging and sort of had this disdain for people questioning him. I think it was probably, you know, 05, 06, maybe 07, um, where it was like, you know, I've got three Super Bowls. I won three in four years. Like, what, what are you questioning me? What do you know? What do you know about this? What do you know about this offense I built in 06 with Jabbar Gaffney and Doug Gabriel and Rashad Caldwell? What, are you going to question me? You think I don't know what to do on fourth and two? That was the fourth and two year. You don't think I know what to do on fourth and two? I think it was right around then. 06 is probably when it really started to, to shift with him. But you watch that documentary and you see him, you know, smiling and joking. They asked him about Bledsoe, and I forget who it was. Someone asked him, do you reserve the right to change your mind? He looks right at whoever asked the question. Big smile, sort of chuckles a little bit. He goes, hey, you know, I guess we'll see. And it's like, well, who is this guy? <laughs> That's not Bill Belichick. That's not how he talks. That's not how he responds to someone questioning him. Are you going to change your mind? Bleep you, am I going to change my mind? What are you? Don't, don't ask me about that. I'll change my mind if I want to change my mind. 
You know, that wouldn't that wouldn't get a smile from 2024 Bill Belichick, I can tell you that. I don't know, much, not much is getting smiles from him these days. But still, even even despite all that, um I remember the Red Sox smearing uh, uh Tito on the way out. And not just him, you know, plenty of plenty of other people who exited. Dombrowski got a little bit of it. That reckless spending, oh, he was such a reckless spender. Yeah, that's how you won. That's how you won that World Series. And if you had kept spending instead of suddenly deciding, no, we can't spend ever again, maybe you wouldn't be in this position you're in right now. Maybe if you didn't decide to run away from Dave Dombrowski, you wouldn't be in this position right now. And I say all that to say this. The Patriots and the Crafts are no better than the Henrys when it comes to that stuff. When it comes to, you know, kicking them out the door and then uh, making sure everybody knows whose fault it was, they are right there. They are right there. Every bit is uh, is conniving, I'd say, as uh, Red Sox ownership was with some of those people I just mentioned. And I don't know. Maybe it took the documentary for me to really see it, but I'm just I'm I'm hoping at some point that Belichick gets his side out there because all he really gave you was you know whatever you're going to see in this in this documentary and nothing. That's it. Nothing else. His speech at the press conference was a nice speech. I mean, it a lot of choked a lot of people up when he when he started talking about the fans and seeing them in the grocery store and all that stuff. And I, I I liked that speech too. I thought it was really nice. But at some point, at some point, his side of this is going to have to come out, right? Like it's there's no way he can just sit there and take this forever. Eventually, he's going to hit back, and I'm looking forward to that. Six one seven 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 nine seven ninety three seven is the phone number. I'll tell you what's trending, and when we come back, uh, we'll get into some free agent talk. As uh, free agency is beginning very soon, we got the draft coming up in a couple months, and we'll also talk with Mike Cadlick, our own Mike Cadlick, W-E-E-I, W-E-E-I dot com. That's all coming up right after trending. This is Sunday Mass on W-E-E-I with Christian Arcand. I think there's a genuine what the hell are they doing curiosity going on there because it's they didn't officially hire a GM. They didn't go through a head coach search. They're doing things unconventionally. Um, and I think in a lot of ways they're still behind when it comes to staffing. Um, and so, like, there is, I think, some curiosity over what their thinking is and how they're approaching all of this. And a lot of questions, too, on what they're going to do after the draft and whether or not that's going to include a general manager by title, whether that's Elliot Wolf or someone else. It's Burt Breer. It's Arkan here, Reverend Arkan, Sunday Mass. Talking about the staff and how it's a staff and the Patriots made up of people doing their job for the first time. It's Gerard Mayo, a first-time head coach. Van Pelt, a first-time play caller. Elliot Wolf, if he's given this raw, I mean, it seems like he has it, but I don't know if he's getting the title, first-time GM. Um, and there's others, too. Covington, first-time defensive coordinator. I mean, you go down the line. It's a lot of guys doing their job for the first time. Uh, Mike Reese. In his uh, gospel today, his Sunday gospel, it was Quick Hits, which I read every single Sunday, said this. This was his second bullet point, and I'm quoting. The Patriots are expected to announce their coaching staff early this week, and one of the headline themes is expected to be volume. Volume. <laughs> like hair volume or like sound volume. Uh, Belichick traditionally had one of the NFL's smallest coaching staffs. Hair volume. Partly because he wanted to ensure there was no mixed messages. In contrast, Mayo is expected to have a significantly larger staff, which is somewhat tied to the desire to integrate ideas and perspectives from those who have coached elsewhere. 
and is also perhaps a nod to how rare Belichick was in terms of having the knack to handle so many responsibilities himself. Hmm. Hmm. This sounds kind of like what the Celtics are doing, doesn't it? A little bit? The Celtics hired all those assistant coaches. You know, you got Van Gundy and Cassell and all these other guys who were there for who were there for uh, not a first-year head coach anymore in Joe Mazzulla, but a head coach that they felt needed to be babysat a little bit. Is that, that what's happening here? A huge, voluminous coaching staff for Gerard Mayo? Is that what he wants? He came up watching Bill and, you know, coaching with Bill. Did he look at that and say, you know, I like the way Bill does things, but I want a lot more people in my ear telling me what to do. Like, you know, and in some ways I'm encouraged because I feel like, and I've said this before, every single Bill Belichick understudy who ends up getting a head coaching job somewhere kind of does the, the Bill thing right away. And it's like he did not even Bill did the Bill thing right away. Bill, I was just talking about this. Bill Belichick, when he first got to New England, was chatting it up with the media. He was smiling and laughing and joking and whatever. Like he was not, he was not a whole Bill yet. Like he just wasn't. But I mean, look down the line at every single one of these guys, basically, who gets a head coaching job all the way back to Mangini. They get there, they stomp their feet and say, I'm just like Bill Bell. I come from his coaching tree and I'm going to do it his way. And I'm going to be an a-hole. And they all were a-hole. I mean, every single one of them. <laughs> like, all the way down the line. Bill O'Brien, Bill O'Brien when Houston maybe wasn't, uh, and you know what? He was one of the more successful guys off the tree, so maybe that was part of it. But he wasn't a major a-hole when he got to Houston. I mean, he was, you know, the teapot or whatever, but he wasn't like, he wasn't like Patricia in Detroit, all right? Or Joe Judge in New York. Or uh, you know Josh McDaniels anywhere he went, like it wasn't it wasn't that okay, like that was those th- those things were doa, and you know you remember Patricia scolding the media like you know it took Bill a couple of years before he started scolding the media Matt you may want to win some games first you may want to do something you may want to establish yourself as a good hire before you start you know ripping everybody and telling the guys in the media not to slouch in their seats or whatever. like he was right away I mean it was it was instantaneous with them and it didn't work and it's like you know that doesn't always that doesn't just work you can't just walk in and do that you have to win you have to earn that you have to earn the right to do that and even with Bill Bill had to earn it he wasn't he wasn't shutting everybody down and uh and behaving that way until he'd already put three championship uh rings on his fingers you know like that was it's a different story and that's also why he had such a small room and he was able to do things that he wanted to do. Gerard Mayo has not established that yet. Gerard Mayo has to establish himself. He has to earn some things too. And when Bill was first here, it wasn't quite this expansive, but there were more people. I mean, you know, Pioli was around. All these people were around. And some of them were holdovers. It wasn't all Bill's guys. And so Mayo now is, is starting from that same spot. I'm glad that they're not just saying, all right, Mayo, you're just just like Bill, and you get to have the smallest room you want, don't have to have analytics, don't have to have anything. You do it however you want to, buddy, and we'll just stay back here and not get in the way. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not I'm not looking for that for the 37-year-old first-time head coach, and they didn't do that for Bill. They didn't do that for Bill in 2000, 2001. There were people around. 
There were other voices in the room. There were other people helping to make those decisions. So this doesn't bother me. But it does seem like, you know, they're really pumping up the fact that it's going to be different now. Like, it's not going to be like how it was. And I just don't know that the Crabs, I feel like they're really overplaying that hand a little bit. You, you don't want, you know, these last couple of years haven't been great, sure. But you don't want to just completely break off everything from the dynasty. I just don't, I don't see how that works for them. I don't see how, I don't think that that's going to be the PR hit that they think it is. You did have to move on from Bill, I understand. But you don't have to continue to make it seem like he was the only thing standing in the way of this team being good. Because I think we're all going to learn very soon that, you know, there was some there was some other elements to this. <laughs> it wasn't all just Bill. As much as he put the roster together and coached it and everything else, you know, him leaving is not suddenly going to make them much better is, I guess, the point. More so than... You know, he wasn't the problem. Like, he was obviously the problem. He was the guy in charge of everything. He was the guy in charge of the roster. He was in charge of the draft picks. He was in charge of the free agents. Um, He was maybe in charge of the spending. I mean, it sort of depends on who you believe. They both denied that it was them that was cheaping out. You know, Kraft denied it. Bill denied it. They both complained about it, about the other one. Uh, Bill complained about how we're always last in scoring. Kraft complained about how, well, I'm I'm not the one who sets that. Any coach can spend whatever he wants. Any GM can spend whatever they want to. If I can't afford to do it, I'm going to sell the team. If I can't afford to pay the salaries, I'll sell the team. You know, like they both sound pretty convincing when they do that too, by the way. Like when Bill was complaining about being 27th in spending or whatever it was, he was convincing. When Kraft talks about if I can't pay the salaries, I'll sell the team, he's convincing. I don't really know who I believe, but I tend to believe that the guy who owns the team is the main one, is the main one setting those uh, parameters. And I also think that Bill got into a rhythm with that, you know? You win all these championships and you win all these Super Bowls doing it that way and sort of, you know, finding value later in the draft and signing free agents who aren't the big ticket guys and sort of waiting for the next wave and finding diamonds in the rough and all that stuff that they did for years and years and years with the greatest quarterback of all time, you know, leading the way like that. That all became part of the process. And you're at the point where you're trying to teach the old dog new tricks, and it just doesn't work that way. So now you got a new dog, <laughs> you know. Now you got a new dog, and you got to sort of start with him and have all the coaches and all the trainers around and make sure he's, you know, doesn't make too big of a mess on the carpet. And I think that's pretty much what we're looking for this year with uh, with Gerard Mayo. And there's a lot that's going to have to be juggled here by this new group. You're going to have to decide how much money you're willing to spend in free agency. You're going to have to spend a lot of money. You have $80 million if you cut J.C. Jackson, I think. And for more on that, uh, and the draft pick stuff as well. And also we'll talk Dynasty with our good friend, uh, my good friend and yours, Mike Cadlick, WEEI and WEEI.com. The pride of the Dedham Marauders joins us right now on the program. Mike, how you doing? What's up, Arkan? Happy Sunday. How are we doing? Happy Sunday to you too, my friend. Um, Let's jump right in. The first two episodes, have you seen the entire thing? Did you get one of those screeners for the Dynasty? Have you seen the whole thing? Yes, I have. I have seen it uh, front to back. So uh, we're, we're, we're in for one down the stretch here, Arkan. Seems like it. I've heard a lot of people say, yeah, you know, it really it really ramps up the intensity. Uh, now that everyone's seen the first two episodes, uh, some of your thoughts and impressions on that, anything we can take away from that and maybe apply to the team today? Yeah, um, my first sort of, uh, I guess, reaction takeaway from it was that you know, Drew Bledsoe was the freaking man here. And like that decision was not easy at all. Um, and not that, not that I thought it was, but I guess I was too young to really realize at the time, like, Oh wow, this guy was like, you know, 
Superman, McDonald's commercials, future Hall of Famer, like just got paid $100 million. And then he played two games with the team. And Belichick was really given, you know, carte blanche to just make that decision. And I think, you know, talking about and kind of going off what you just said about how it, you know, uh, relates to this team, right? Like everybody's wondering, will Kraft and uh, Jonathan medal and will they get involved? And what's is Robin Glazer, the GM and things like that. But I right. think, you know, when you when you sort of take a step back and look at it that way, I think Robert Kraft realizes that his job is to put people in place to succeed and let them succeed or let them fail and then be able to hold them accountable. And, you know, he did that with Belichick, and that's what he told Bledsoe. He said when he had the meeting with Phil and he had the meeting with Bledsoe, I can make this decision for him or I can let him make it on his own. And if it doesn't work out, I can fire him. And that's basically what he said. And so I think they're going to do that now today because, you know, Kraft knows that that's what he did in the past and it worked out. So I do think they're going to give it over to Mayo, give it over to Elliot Wolf, and let this thing play out. And I don't think you're going to see Jonathan and Robert Meadow like some people thought they would. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope not. I hope that you don't see too much of that. On the other hand, you do now, and this is uh, something Reese wrote about today, they're going to be announcing the coaching staff, and it is going to be voluminous, yeah. right? That's the big thing. A lot of volume, different from Bill, different from you know his small circle. It's going to be really, really big. Um, could that sort of lend itself to just a lot, of, a lot more noise than we're used to here? I see. I don't think so, Ark. Like, I kind of look at it, right, and – it could just be, you know, the, the I guess, frankly, the talk radio angle of it where, you know, they do one thing and you pick it apart and then they do another thing and you pick it apart. But it's like, I feel like when crap, or not, not crap, excuse me, when Belichick was here with his own little brain trust and it was him, Patricia Judge, McDaniels, and nobody else was allowed in and we can't, you know, no, no secrets are getting let out and I don't want, you know, a big staff because blah, this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, Everyone was like, well, you need more brain power. You need more people. You need more eyes. You need more things to come in. And then you you flip it the other way, and it's like, well, why are so many people going to be here? Why aren't you just going to shrink it down? It's like I, a lot of these teams nowadays, you know, you look at teams, frankly, like the 49ers and the Chiefs and, you know, a bunch of the other successful uh, successful teams in the league, they have these, uh, you know, larger coaching staffs with, you know, special, specialty coaches and uh, quality control and, you know, a quarterback's coach and then even like a mental coach. And it's like, it's just, it's kind of the way of the, the way of the land right now. And so I think that it is a good thing. I think they're going to take information from multiple different people. And again, it could be a, a thing where you look at the collaboration and then it gets cloudy because, you know, we've looked at this collaboration where the Kraft and Mayo spoke about at the intro and, you know, sometimes it doesn't sound great because if you don't have a lead person in charge, everyone's going to be pointing fingers at each other and saying, no, he made the decision and that made the decision. But, yeah. you know, if there's people, if there's decision makers and then there's people to kind of lean on, then I think that's okay. So uh, long story short, I think it's a good thing that we're going to have a bigger staff than uh, we had in the past year. All I'm right. Sure. Well, speaking of that, uh, Elliot Wolf is going to have to make some decisions here in free agency, which is uh, starting relatively soon. Um, yeah. What... Uh, what leanings have you heard of that uh, this team is making in free agency? We obviously know where the holes in the roster are. Where do you, uh, where have you heard, or where do you think they're going to be spending the uh, big chunk of that money? Yeah, so free agency coming up, like you said, a couple weeks. Uh, the franchise tag window also opens, uh, t- or Tuesday, rather. I believe it's the Tuesday. The 20th, either, right? Yeah. Time or four- yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, so Tuesday the 20th. Um, and really, looking at tea leaves and kind of putting together rumblings and things that, you know, things you hear and, you know, talk about, right? I think 
there's there's a big chance that there's a strong chance that they franchise tag Kyle Duggar here. Um, I just I look at frankly Reese's you know sort of headline uh, headline point this morning on ESPN was the fact that could they should they franchise tag Kyle Duggar? He doesn't tend to float things without it being you know a tad informed, and so um, may they. Might they franchise tag him and then look to extend him during free agency? Possibly, but I think they want to tag him so he doesn't really have the opportunity uh, to negotiate elsewhere. Um, other options there, obviously, you look at Mike Onwenu, Hunter Henry, guys who are going into contract years. You want to, uh, they're not going into contract years, going into free agency rather. You want to try and hang on to those guys because, um, you know, as we know, in Hunter Henry and Mike Onwenu are different. They're not in the same. Uh, sort of bucket or category, but like the Patriots haven't re-signed a top three round pick since Deron Harmon. Like that's crazy. That just goes to show. And that's, you know, really why Belichick isn't here is because of poor drafting. And so Duggar's a homegrown guy. He's a guy who's had success. He's a guy who's probably going to get paid on the open market. So if they can keep around for another year, um, I think that one makes the most sense. And I think they're going to probably lean towards franchise tagging him over the next couple of weeks. Any extensions coming for uh, any, you know, Christian Barmore's or any of those guys? So, I mean, you look at the guys. Barmore should be a slam dunk. I feel like that's that's sort of an uh, when, not if situation because he is. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the thing Daniel Jeremiah put out on Friday, but like the the building blocks of a championship team, and he gave guys like blue chip and good, and you know. Yes, I noticed the like, uh, Patriots had no blue chips. I did see that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but they did have one green. They did have one good, and it was Christian Barmore. Yes. So like. Look, he's your best player. He was a second-round pick. Uh, he's improved every single year he's been in the system. Like, that's a guy, frankly, like Duggar should have been extended last year. These are people that you draft and you hit on. That's the point of the draft. You hit on guys to build your team, extend them. And so Christian Barmore should be a slam dunk. If they don't make that happen, I, again, I think they will because you bring in new brain power and brain trust in the front office like Elliot Wolf, who – I wrote about it a couple weeks ago on WEI.com. Uh, he's a guy who I don't really understand the – it seems like sort of unhinged hate towards him and anything the Patriots do right now. Like, that's a guy who's been around the league. He knows what's going on. He's never been fired. Um, and so I think, you know, long story short, Wolf is going to be a guy who realizes what talent they have, keep them in-house, um, and then move forward through the draft and free agency and things like that. So I, I agree. I think Christian Barmore should be one of the other guys. Hunter Henry, uh, Mike Onwenu, not really extension candidates because they are going to hit free agency, but those are guys who I can see them grabbing for one or two years too and kind of build a, uh, you know, keep around and be building blocks here. Any movement on the draft pick? And do you think that the way they go in free agency may dictate how they use that draft pick, or do you think those things will be sort of independent of each other? So interesting that, you know, the, the the Patriots put out those social media, and granted, they're social media doctored videos that they cut and, you know, repurpose a million times. But, like, they, they put out the three videos of Alex Van Pelt, uh, DeMarcus Covington, and Jeremy Springer this week. And one thing that Van Pelt said about his offensive system was um, that he, he, you know, he's not going to build a system and then put players into it. He's going to build his system around the players they have. And so... Um, that's sort of why I, I think they're going to bring in a guy, whether it's Drake May, whether it's uh, Jaden Daniels, they're going to build their offensive system around that. So I don't think that there's really – frankly, I don't think they're really leaning any which way on the quarterback front right now. Um, I know you're anti-quarterback at the top of this draft, yeah. but I do think that that's kind of where they're going to lean. Uh, again, the 
the age-old question and the sort of the draft um, cliche, right? It's you draft for need, you draft best available, and then you look at quarterback, and they're either going to draft the third quarterback or they're going to be able to get their hands on any best player in the class. And so it's, you know, obviously it remains to be seen, but I just think, and I look at it, right, and for and uh, Van Pelt also mentioned the quarterback in that uh, social media video too, so take that for what it's worth. But I just think that it's too much – you're hoping to not be at the number three pick again. It's such an important and valuable position. And next year's class, I know you think this year's class stinks. Next year's class stinks even worse. And I've heard so that, yeah. You need to grab that top guy. you got to try and build around him. And then whoever it is, whether it's, again, Daniels or, or Drake May um, or even Caleb Williams, if he falls that far, which he won't, but um, for the sake of discussion, then you build the system around that, and then you go in from there. So. Uh, I, I do think they're going to still lean quarterback, and I think that's the decision they probably should go. All right, Mike, before we let you go, uh, you were I saw reporting on this, and I think we're over in, uh, at BC when he was introduced. Bill O'Brien mm-hmm. not going far. He'll be uh, taking over as the head coach of the Eagles. What do you think about that move, and how was the uh, atmosphere there when he was, uh, when he was introduced? Yeah, um, I like it. I think, it's, I, mean, I think it's cool. I think it's good for him. Uh, his family's around here. He's from here. I know everybody knows that. But you know, went to St. John's Prep, went to Brown, um, and then was able to come back this year. And it just it didn't work out. And so, uh, good to see him get back and land at BC. I do think it's a good hire for them. Um, it's someone who he said it's a dream job. And so, like you looked at Jeff Halfley, and he was a guy, great coach, Ohio State. You know, a, a good hire here. But it kind of seemed like the writing was on the wall that he would jump eventually. Right. Obviously, he makes the move now, and so for. That whole thing to line up with O'Brien uh, this this off season, you know, it seems like a slam dunk. So this could be his sort of destination job, and he stays there for 15, 20 years and retires, maybe 10 years, whatever you want to call it. But um, I do, I think it's a good hire. I think he's going to help that program out, and especially with the changing college football landscape, NIL and things like that. Um, it's good to kind of have a guy who wants, frankly, who wants to come and be a head coach at a program, and so. Uh, I think it's a slam dunk for them. I really do. I think it's a good hire. All right. We'll leave it right there. Mike Cadlick, great stuff as always, sir. We'll uh, hear from you, I'm sure, this week, and we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Arkan. Have a good one. All right. That is uh, Mike Cadlick, W-E-E-I. WEEI.com joining me here on Sunday Mass. I've only got a few minutes left to go here, so uh, we'll uh, take a break. We'll come back, get to your phone calls, and uh, some final thoughts that I had on the NBA, the All Star Weekend, and more. That's coming up next. Sunday Mass continues right now with Christian Arcan on WEEI. You think the code is messing up this pass here? No, because Jaden's a shooter. He's a shooter. Was that a D Brown? He tried to do it Tribute to D Brown. And then you saw him pump up the shoes. Yeah, okay. pumped him up. Oh, the cloud didn't like that. They didn't. They did not like that. Wow. They did not like that. I didn't like it either. <laughs> I didn't like any of that. Not true, actually. It's not true. I like the uh, Terrence Clark thing. But even that dunk wasn't that good. It's Christian Arcan here, Reverend Arcan. Only a few moments left here before we pass things off to, I believe it is Fitzy and Hart, right? They're coming up next uh, from 2 till 6, and they will have you for the duration of the afternoon. Um, I wanted to touch back on the, uh, on the NBA All-Star Weekend. By the way, Larry Bird was just named something. He was just named... Legend of the Year by the NBA Retired Players Association. And he's making a speech. I think he just made a speech right now. Uh, I didn't know that this was happening. But if I had known about it, I would have cleared aside some space to talk about Larry Bird, which, as you know, if you listen to the afternoon show, I never do. 
I never bring up the 80 Celtics. I never talk about Larry Bird. They're definitely not my Roman Empire uh, in any way. So, you know, it would have been very rare for me to do this. But just all that to the side for one second. TD Garden tweeted something uh, right before I went on the air that has got everybody mad. Have you seen this, Zach? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the bag policy. The bag thing. So I went yesterday to the Bruins game with my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. We've been to about five games this year. And she's brought in the same little purse to every single game. Right. We get to the game. We go to go in. Guy comes up with a little piece of laminated paper and says, you can't bring that in. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, she's brought it to every game. He goes, yeah, new bag policy. It, uh, it went into effect today, and they didn't tell yeah. anybody. Yesterday, uh, this, is the, this is the tweet. Effective February 17th, which they're tweeting it the day after the thing goes into effect. Effective February 17th, new Evolve Technology, which is a company, security screening will be implemented at TD Garden. To ensure a swifter entry process, we strongly discourage guests from bringing bags. Bags larger than six inches by four inches by one and a half inches will not be permitted. That is very, very small for a bag. Like, could a phone even fit in the bag that big? I don't think so, right? Six by four by one and a half? That's like the phone maybe is the only thing that could fit in that. Some of those big, like the the S14s or whatever, the big ones, like, I don't know if those fit in the bag that size. And uh, then there's a picture of the bag policy. And it says, here's what you can have. Bags measuring six by four by one and a half or smaller are permitted into the arena. They do not need to be cleared. You can also uh, use bags with the purchase at the Boston Pro Shop which are clear bags, but if you want to buy something, you can use that bag. You cannot uh, wear a backpack. All backpacks are prohibited. I think that's always been the case. And no bags that are any larger than 6 by 4 by one and a half. Um, This seems very uh, arbitrary, I guess. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they just sort of decided, okay, this is going to be the size. And it also seems very restrictive towards... You know, any woman who wants to go to a game or if women go to the game together and there's not, you know, they don't have clothes with pants on them or something like, you know, or clothes with pants on them, clothes with pockets in them, like, you know, you can't have a bag. You can't have like a little bag. It's not, you're not asking for anything huge here, but I feel like you have to be able to have your stuff with you. You know, it's just, this is very, this is very strange. It's very strange that TD Garden did this so uh, secretly and that now they're just sort of saying, here, this is the way it is, and if you don't like it, tough, and sorry, we're not, we're just going to tell you today. I'm seeing tweets all over the place. People who, just like Zach just told you, they're getting stopped right there. They have tickets to the game. They can't get in. They're saying you got to leave your stuff here. you got to leave all your stuff. you got to go find a place for your stuff. Where are you going to put your stuff? You took the train to the game. Like, what are you supposed to do? So they had a, they had a locker outside one of the, it was like a box truck locker thing. Oh, where, that sounds uh, safe. Yeah, you could go pay $15 to store your bag. 15 and bucks. People, they were still making people check their pro shop bags, even though it says now on the release that. They couldn't even bring the pro shop bags? Yeah, there were a bunch of pro shop bags oh in there. Oh my God. <laughs> what? You can't have that on the policy and then to confiscate the bag, or not confiscate the bag, but then not let them bring the bags in. That's, outra- that's outrageous. I can't believe they're doing that. Get this together, TD Garden. Come on. This is this is wrong. What's happening here, this is not this is not the way to do this. I understand you want everybody to be safe and you want the security screening to be, you know, top notch. Fine. But don't be ridiculous. This is ridiculous. You're being ridiculous. It seems like they kind of sprung it on everybody because all the people checking bags and checking tickets and everything, they all were just as surprised as everyone else. So it sounds like it was a real well thought out operation all the way around. 
Um, yeah. I mean, listen. Not don't want to. I feel like I'm criti- just criticizing every single team ownership today. But we know who owns the garden. What are you doing? <laughs> like, what the hell are you doing? What is this? What is the meaning of this? In the middle of the season, it's not, you know, like, if you're going to have an initiative like this, you have to at least give people time to prepare to understand this is the way it's going to go. You can't spring it in the middle of the season and then have people the day of the game coming in there not knowing that there's a new policy. That's that's ridiculous. And then you tweet about it the day after? Like, that game wasn't bad enough yesterday? Like, this homestand hasn't been bad enough? Now you're changing the bag policy? What are you doing? What are you doing? That's really, really weird. That is a very weird, I think, not very smart way of doing this, personally. And you've upset a lot of fans. I mean, a lot of people are mad about this. And they should be mad about this. This If if I depended on having to carry certain things with me and was now not able to do it or, you know, had to had to wear, like, cargo shorts or something in order to bring all the stuff with me that I want to wear, I'd be annoyed by that. I'd be annoyed by having to wear cargo shorts to the game. Like, I don't want to wear cargo shorts to the game. I don't want to wear cargo shorts anywhere. (laughs) You know? What am I, a midshipman? Like, come on. What the hell's the This is a very odd policy. Um, I'll just say that. I'll uh, I'll see if they do something about this. I'd imagine they will. There's already been a lot of outcry. Uh, the TD Garden tweet about it is getting ratioed to high heavens right now. Um, this is uh, this is very strange. Anyways, um, last thing I wanted to just touch on real quick. I think this may be the end of the dunk contest, right? This may be the uh, the end of the dunk contest. This was supposed to be the thing that saved the dunk contest. Jalen Brown, an all-star, coming in and, uh, and and saving the day and making it cool again. Feel like the dunk contest is cool again? Do you feel like any other all star is going to to do this? I don't think so. I think that's it. I think it's over. Rest in peace uh, to the uh, to the dunk contest. And that is my time. Uh, Mass has ended. Go in peace. I'll be back on Monday with Jones and Mego. I'll talk to you then. In the meantime, Fitzy and Hart are coming your way. They'll have you until six o'clock. I am Arkand. Uh, this has been the Sunday Mass. I'll talk to you on Monday. Goodbye.